welcome to One of 200, the independent political and media podcast, where you're joined by your favorite co-hosts, uh, me, Kyle. Uh, Bronco, welcome in. Hello. We've got Philip. Philip Nanestad. Yes, that's me. Thanks for putting yourself first, Kyle, as always. <laughs> uh, and, and we're joined by um, sometime guest, um, but joining us in the co-hosting seat today, Paul Kelland. Hey, Paul. Hey, guys. How you going? So we're moving to a little bit of a different format today. Um, hopefully uh, going to be trying to do this a bit more with the podcast in the coming year, where we're going to try and break down the current events, uh, what's been happening over the last week or so, uh, give a bit of a, our, our thoughts and analysis of that, and then ideally release it before those events aren't current anymore. So first attempt at that today, um, and I'll jump straight into editing it um, later this afternoon to release on Sunday. But this is yeah. getting a full, full view behind the, uh, the sausage maker. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gross. No, it's just behind the curtain. This is theater, not sausagery. <laughs> so the first thing uh, we wanted to talk about was I guess it's been going on since the beginning of the year and maybe was even being hinted at last year is this ongoing narrative that inflation is coming, uh, house of, uh, cost of living is, is rising rapidly and any number of uh, different people in the political and media sphere are trying to attribute that um, you know, to whatever their, their pet haters. Uh, just recently uh, in the last week, there's a piece out where David Seymour said it's the government's COVID spending uh, that is causing uh, prices to go up. That was uh, in a piece by Thomas Coughlin uh, from the Herald, which said that the cost of the COVID recovery uh, so far, the COVID effort so far was uh, in, in the range of $8 billion. Um, it just seems totally... Uh, I don't know. What do you call illiterate, but for numbers? Enumerate? Yeah, sure. To me. <laughs> <laughs> that people would would be making their argument. Well, it's a, it's a narrative that they're taking from uh, the, the right internationally. This is a, a piece of messaging that has been rolled out, obviously, in the US already. And uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense there. The, the, the idea is that because... Uh, governments are spending large that that that's causing the inflation but then if that's the case how is it that inflation is happening in every country everywhere how is it happening and i mean in new zealand where like spending doesn't even compare to the scale of spending in the united states and yet inflation is happening in both how does that make sense how is it that china's experiencing very very high inflation as well i mean you, you know you could go on and on and on it, it's a, the the idea is they found a way to uh, argue against government spending and, and, and basically to push for smaller government and government doing less in people's lives. This time by saying, well, look, look at how everyone's prices are going up. That's, that's because government's doing too much. And, and you know, it's successful because um, it's, it, it, a lot of people, uh, I think, use the parallel of the 1970s and they, and they go, oh, okay, well, you know, that's what happened in the 1970s. So clearly this is what's happening now. And the story in the 1970s is not that not that uh, simple either, but that's the kind of like 
established conventional narrative that's been established in people's minds is that, well, you know, government spent too much in the 1970s, that's why inflation went up. Meanwhile, there's a whole host of stuff going on in that decade that, 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 um, that was why prices were going up the way they were, including like the oil embargo, uh, which never gets mentioned, which has nothing to do with government spending. So there were governments in the Middle East. Yeah, and I mean, well, the irony, well, slight irony, I guess, um, with that is that recently oil's been, um, well, cost of petrol's been a big, you know, um, a big a big push on inflation in, in New Zealand. But yeah, I mean, the, the kind of broader thing, the right will always look to blame something like government spending or another one um, is like, oh, we're just paying our workers too much. You know, we can't do that. We can't have wages going up. You know, that's actually not a good thing. Um, so they'll often throw that one out there as well. Um, and, and one thing that yeah, really gets to me about this is that they'll kind of point to those things uh, and then and then the defense that, well, at least from the Labour government over here has been that, you know, global supply chains um, have have faced a lot of, um, what's the word, uh, disruption um, from COVID um, and, you know, things like building supplies, cost of building supplies uh, are a big contributor to it as well. Um, so they'll point to those specific things um, and, and those are all, you know, they're all true they're contributing to um you know a, a bit of a spike in inflation now but like if you look at over time since like at least 2008 some of the data that i've looked at um since then the biggest contributors to inflation since then uh necessities energy transport food uh rent um and some of the things that have um contributed to inflation you know, or, or like push the other way with inflation and drag it down is uh, interest rates on mortgages so you know you've you've what you've got there is like an effect in, in, in inequity where people that are spending most of their money on necessities are you know hit by inflation much harder than people that don't so um there's there's all these like larger items that are kind of um you know within the story of inflation and you know these little attacks on government spending or um you know things like that kind of don't really tell the full picture. Yeah, which is very convenient because obviously ACT's been the most uh, consistent voice in the media talking about inflation since before even the first lockdown when uh, Red Robo was merely a glint in Morgan Godfrey's eye. <laughs> but they were already saying like, oh, any increase in spending will, will blow out cost of living for everyone. It's bad for poor people actually to spend money uh, keeping them employed. Um, and obviously we had our criticisms of the economic response not going to workers and going to bosses and there were all sorts of inequities and kind of inefficiencies that came with that but the fact that they set that narrative so early and haven't changed that this entire time like actors still saying the exact same thing they were saying since before then that's part of the power of like the neoliberal ideology that they well mostly purport to kind of maintain is that they have the same story whereas national through like a various configurations and leadership and experimenting with um kind of dabbling in centrism center-rightism uh kind of anti-maori baiting social mess whatever politics judith collins was trying to do in the middle there um hasn't really managed to maintain that narrative so well so it'll be interesting to see if act um carries on with that and manages to keep support by hammering on cost of living stuff so just one other thing i add as well is that um, what the one thing that they won't say, obviously, um, the, the right that is, is that 
a lot of the um, the things that have contributed to that longer term inflation are controlled by like relatively few uh, companies in New Zealand. You know, you've got like the supermarket duopoly is one that gets brought up a lot um, and, you know, the energy sector. Um, so you've got a lot of this, you know, duopoly or-, or Landlords. Uh, yeah, exactly. Landlords, lots of market power. Um, and, you know, that sort of comes through in various ways, like the Commerce Commission- you know they'll produce these sort of reports into the sectors every now and then and it's kind of a bit of a a bit of a slap on the wrist normally um but what they often find is that um i think the one with the um, on the grocery sector kind of recently was that you know um there's not a lot of competition in this market and that's not to say that competition is the answer obviously but um it is um you know something that contributes to them being able to you know, push up prices, not just for the consumer, but also to wield a lot of power over the, the suppliers, food suppliers and things. Uh, and that can, yeah, sort of contribute to, to the downstream cost of living as well. Yeah, and it's galling that they're making, a lot of these arguments um, are being couched in terms of, oh, think of the, of the poor people who have to pay more for a block of cheese or, or whatever. But they, like, act in national, don't give a fuck. You know, they, they all, at the same time, they're saying, oh, the reason they're having to pay more for a block of cheese is because we're paying them too much. And that's what's putting your prices up. It's this really bizarre um, little bit, a bit of disjunction where they're trying to do a bait and switch. But we know that a lot of these companies like, um, you know, supermarkets, for example, are making record profits. It's, they, they can afford to pay their staff a lot more than they currently are. Um, I, I don't know, I even know where that fucking money's going, honestly. Uh, probably to executives as bonuses, um, maybe into, I, I don't think there's any more market to grow in New Zealand, honestly. But it's uh, not like there's a shortage of, of cash for them. And that's not what is driving the, the pressure on, on costs. Yeah, a bunch of the new millionaires that, that were created like in the last uh, year or so, happen to be uh, supermarket owners. So, you know, it's, they, they, it's really convenient. It, it, the reason why this whole inflation narrative is so great for, for, for the right is because they can, it lets them posture as the defenders of the little guy. Oh my God, look at, you know, look at all the, the way that, that you can't afford things. Look at look what's happening to you at your bank accounts. Uh, we really care about you. But it, it lets them redirect the the anger and outrage towards the things that they basically want to, to minimize, which is which is government's role in the economy, and and basically allows them to to justify the amassing of profits uh, in in a very small amount of hands, without um, while still being able to sort of posture as kind of populist and and, and anti elite. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, when I look at the, the discussion of, of inflation in New Zealand and I look at the discussion in the US, it's always interesting what doesn't get mentioned, what doesn't get talked about. And of course, yeah, I mean, both Labour and National uh, have an interest in not mentioning, you know, in keeping the, the discussion about government spending and what degree of government spending is okay and, 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 and uh, best for the economy. And not about, yeah, should there be a government-owned supermarket chain that injects some competition so that there isn't just this duopoly that basically sets prices for everyone? Uh, or, you know, 
should there be a more aggressive transition away from fossil fuels, as we've been calling for, and we know that we have to do eventually, uh, uh, we've been saying for years, uh, which would take us away from dependence on, on, on oil. And, and, you know, I mean, the reason why you mentioned, uh, Paul, the, the way that, that, that oils kind of contribute to, to this, these price increases, and that's directly because of um, the, the pandemic, because when everyone locked down, demand for fossil fuels went down markedly. Then suddenly things opened again and production had to restart. And so it's been a huge disruption um, for that industry. And, and that's why we're getting this like craziness in, in, in prices. One of the things I would say, you know, this idea that it's because the, the wages are too high, that's why this inflation is happening. Well, okay, but then when did, when did labor uh, start raising the minimum wage? Um, was it 2018? So years before any of this started happening, you would have thought if this was the reason why inflation was happening, surely it would have started years ago. Um, but no, so mysteriously, it only happened once this world historical pandemic. Uh, economics uh, is very complex, Bronco. I don't expect you to understand how intricate it is. The thing that really annoys me about that is that it's always the wages of the people at the bottom that's the problem it's never yeah 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 bonuses and the ceo salaries it's never that oh no that's just one guy it's just economies of scale paul all the dividends <laughs> like all the huge profits and the dividends that they're paying out like it's it's never that money that's flying through the economy that's the problem yeah it's always you know yeah the people at the bottom of the heap and and the people at the um you know in the lowest paid uh roles not only is it is it a case uh during the pandemic that they uh almost solely keeping this economy running. But every dollar that they receive in, in wages goes straight back into the economy. You know, like, not only are they the, the, front, the front line yeah. um, and making sure that people can get, like, food and groceries or, um, you know, that things are cleaned. Um, you know, incredibly important in a pandemic, it turns out. Whenever they get a paycheck... They also keep the wheels turning for everyone else. And what what do we all think that you know the CEOs are putting their money into? They they don't. Like they they sit on it for more or less, or they put it into houses, um, and then they charge exorbitant uh, rent for some moldy little basement flat. It's disgusting. It's funny how quickly the idea of essential workers was just thrown away. It was, it was for about like, I don't know, eight months. It was the thing to say. And then, yeah, as soon as, soon as possible, it's like, okay, now we can just, well, now we can just forget about these people. Oh, that, they're they're that, actually the problem. They're, that, they're, we're to we're too much. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. And I think the really sad thing for me, um, maybe worrying uh, as we come towards the 2023 election, is that there's just been no pushback on that narrative um, from anywhere on the left um so labor i mean la labor has done some policy stuff so you know minimum wages have have been going up um looking at fair pay agreements and things like that but you very rarely see them saying everyone should get a living wage like and also what about these dudes up here that are actually raking in all the doors um and even the greens have been relatively silent on this uh one or two mps will will make sounds about it but there is there's literally no other narrative for 
for people to grasp onto um, floating out there in the in the ether. Just just one final point from me on the inflation stuff. I just want to pick up on something Bronco was saying before um, about the kind of and, and like you were saying there, Kyle, about the sort of gap in um, political discourse about it. It, yeah, it's, it's really worrying. Um, you know, there is that bait and switch thing from the right. Uh, and then, you know, but Labour, all that they really have is those kind of rural technical details. Oh, you know, it's because of the supply chains, blah, blah, blah. There's no overarching narrative around um, inflation and the role that it plays in the economy and like how we how we treat it. Um, and I mean, one, one thing that back in 2017, Labour did when they came into government with uh, New Zealand First is that they changed the uh, Reserve Bank Act. Um, to put uh, maximum sustainable employment into the mandate of the Reserve Bank. And, you know, the whole thing since the, since the 70s and 80s around the Independent Reserve Bank has been about controlling inflation, right? And inflation primacy is the number one thing that monetary policy should be concerned with. And this was supposed to kind of like balance that out slightly, you know, and actually say, well, the economy also needs to cater for everyone and, you know, provide everyone with um, the means to get by and that was what this maximum sustainable employment was about but unfortunately um, it's not defined as to what the maximum sustainable level is and actually if you you know do a bit of reading and digging into it, it it's it's so unclear that what it the only thing that I can see that it actually means is that it's the maximum um, amount of employment that the economy can sustain until prices start going up, right? Until wages start going up and prices start going up and then, oh no, we can't have that. So that's the maximum sustainable level of employment. And that's, you know, the um, the amount of unemployment that's built into capitalism, right? That's, there is there is an amount and the natural rate of unemployment. Yeah, to keep downward pressure on wages, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's, it's, it's a function of, of capitalism. And like you say, um, Carl, the whole purpose is to keep wages low um, and, you know, make sure that they're, um, is is um, you know not upward pressure on that key cost yeah. for um, businesses and that. So. And the important thing there is that as long as that's the case, it's an employer's market. So employees don't have as much to bargain with. But as soon as you start getting a much smaller percentage of people that can be employed. Um, like you know, a floating workforce or um, or whatever. Suddenly, unions just get a lot more power to to take um, strike action or or to bargain because they can say we just walk. Like there's no one else, and you've seen this uh, predominantly in the the states um, in the United States in the last year. They're just having strike after strike over there because. One, they've they've killed off so many of their own people that you know, for a lot of the frontline um, jobs, there just aren't, aren't as many workers. And two, they had the the great resignation where people were just like fuck this, I'm out. Mm. Um, and so now you've got um, like a strike wave across a whole range of industries because there's they they can't just go and like swap out their workforce like they used to be able to um, because that's that's what used to happen if. An employee decided, or, or a group of employees decided that um, conditions weren't fit for them. They weren't being paid enough, and they tried to strike. They just fire them all and hire on a whole bunch of temps. There's not the workforce for that anymore. 
In, in fact, actually, there was a company, John Deere, that tried to do that. They, uh, they, uh, while their blue collar workers were striking, just uh, in the last couple they, of months, right? Yeah, yeah. They thought, oh, screw it. You know, we'll just uh, replace them with white collar workers who have never worked with this kind of machinery before, and uh, that's fine. They'll learn. And then what they got was a bunch of accidents, horrible accidents. People, getting, I mean, it's not funny. People were getting hurt. They were like you know, serious, serious injuries. Um, so, you know, not, not an easy, the, the quote unquote unskilled uh, labor force is not always so easy to, to replace, it turns out, with skilled quote unquote. Yeah. And, and that's even if they want be like have people who want to do the job, right? Um, they tried doing that with um, people working on a factory line uh, or cleaners or, or uh, people who work in garbage disposal, right? Um, you're not going to get white collar workers to come and do that unless they're incredibly desperate. And because there's this upward uh, pressure for employees right now, for workers, it's just not going to happen. It's the, it's the reserve army of labor thing, right? Yeah. Um, as long as there's that pressure and just to like underscore, underscore what Paul said, the really frustrating thing about the redefinition um, of the role of the reserve bank that on the surface of it looks pretty kind of left-wing and revolutionary coming out of an election for New Zealand First and the Labour Party to say, actually, this organ that's only ever focused on inflation should also care about employment. That, on the surface of it, looks, sounds quite good, right? But as Paul said, if you define maximal, maximum sustainable employment in terms of inflation, which is essentially what it is, you're not really expanding the remit of it. And different economists will give you different amounts of optimal unemployment, which is what they mean by maximum sustainable, unemploy maximal sustainable employment, right? So you're basically saying this is the amount of uh, reserve army of labor that we think is sustainable, which isn't, isn't a whole lot better than we had before. And it's just not good because it's within a system that is trying to fuck you anyway, right? Like, I, I think um, I'll try and definitely segue us into the next topic by stating it out loud. <laughs> and just talk uh, a little bit about, you know, that the $8 billion cost of the New Zealand um, COVID recovery. And Branka, you kind of mentioned it um, as the, the much, much larger amounts um, being spent overseas, like in the hundreds of billions, right? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, Biden's uh, relief bill um, was a, a $2 trillion, it was $1.9 trillion. Uh, and obviously, the, uh, then the infrastructure bill that was passed in November, that was close to a trillion um so uh, i think it was about well no actually no that was about 550 billion dollars of new spending but still still quite a bit and obviously you have to compare those numbers in, in context so you know new zealand is never going to spend that much money anything remotely coming close to that uh and uh in the u.s a trillion dollars is a very different amount to, to how it is here however even so in, in the u.s uh those are still massive numbers way uh, if you put them in context and I, I can't i don't have the numbers in front of me so i'm not going to be able to, to give you the calculations here but i mean if you if you compared those things new zealand spending doesn't even remotely compare to, to what the us and is. it's all deficit spending as well it's not you know the, these arguments that oh we're going to a deficit yada 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 they're just meaningless at this point and during a like global pandemic yeah yeah and i mean if you look at i think uh, the amount of spending since Trump, and actually the, the deficit spending for the pandemic goes up to like at least $4 trillion, if not more. Um, uh, I might actually be wrong about that. It could be as much as $6 trillion. So it's, it's a lot of money. We're talking about a lot of cash. 
Yeah, I, I think like one of the really frustrating things for me is that they go on like uh, commentators and uh, the right and even people in the Labour Party go on and on about, oh, we can't spend too much on COVID. I think Grant Robertson was in the papers this week saying, um, oh, we, we might not have enough money in the COVID uh, fund for a fourth vaccine shot. You know, th things like that, like, fuck, just spend more money. Like, it, it, it doesn't actually um, have the effects well, that you're stating that it does. Yeah, I mean, if everyone has to lock down because you are too miserly to spend money on, on preventing the virus from basically going through and, like, killing everyone... Um, then that's bad for the economy as well. What? I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, where's your reserve <laughs> army of labor now? Uh, I think this is the, the first time you'll hear me say this on the show, but uh, let me be fair to Grant Robertson for a second. Ah! Um, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, note it down. Um, so I, I think that article was in News Hub. Is that right, Kyle? Yeah, um, no, no, no. I, I, um, I agree with you on this, by the way. Yeah, I, I, th I think the headline didn't really do his, his comments justice um he but they're they're still not great like there was something in there where he said oh you know we're running out of money in this particular fund but you know vaccines will always be free in new zealand and, and we'll we'll find the money yeah. um but that kind of speaks to another sort of absurdity of this right is that they always find the money um when they like when they need it they can find it it's not actually a problem also i mean even with that i mean has has a new zealand government increased investment significantly in the, in the health sector are there more like icu beds has any of this been improved not at all apparently and, a little bit a little bit a little bit but like clearly not to the point i mean still basically if if a variant that was vaccine resistant um and and not just not like omicron which for people who are vaccinated tends to be less severe but like a vaccine that was both more severe and vaccine resist resistant swept into new zealand it, the health sector would still be completely yeah and it, it's even a good um like i i think you can even predict that if omicron gets here um even with it being milder for people who are triple vaxxed or double vaxxed or whatever it would still um swamp the health system and that's what we're seeing happening in the us um in the uh, in australia in particular uh, at the moment and uh, this is something we don't often talk about is the, I guess the cost savings. I've, it's a fucking horrible way to talk about it. The cost savings of having proper public health um, or like, uh, you know, uh, in the counterfactual where we actually let it get and we don't spend any money for any kind of COVID relief or um, COVID response. You'd say the cost of delay, right? Uh, or the cost of inaction, which... Again, yeah, I don't have the numbers in front of me either, and I think it's a lot more difficult to try and um, backfill them. But it would be going well, well beyond $8 billion. Like, and we're not even talking about um, you know, people's lives. <laughs> we're just talking about cost of the economy. We talk about cost of inaction quite a bit when it comes to climate change. I think part of the, um, part of the discomfort about... Uh, talking about a similar thing when it comes to pandemics is that just in terms of human nature, we're really badly equipped to think about health spending. Like um, that's actually a conversation we had with Kevin Haig, I think when he came on and briefly talked about health um, is that in a world with uh, scarcity of medicines, 
that we're trying to deal with as a small global player, quote unquote, um, essentially using Pharmac to leverage um, that. It's really, it's a really uncomfortable conversation all the time. There's no easy way to say that like buying, buying one medicine in a global market based on scarcity means that we can't buy a second medicine. That's a really like terrifying proposition. And this happens every, every year or two when some uh, anti-pharmac uh, <laughs> lobbyist with uh, comes up in the media and starts talking to Guy and Espiner about how their relative unnecessarily died of cancer. Because um, there are lots of tragic oversights and pharmac is woefully under-resourced and badly organized. But it's easy to attack that as a kind of bludgeon um, from the right. And it's sort, of a, it's sort of a similar thing when it comes to pandemics, right? Because there's no um, optimal amount of money to spend because it's not about the spend, it's about what you're, what you're doing with it, right? Which is the kind of uncomfortable truth that we struggle to grapple with as human beings. Because if we say, oh, we need uh, 4.5 million uh, times three vaccines, but that means we can't do X because we're in this constrained kind of like enforced scarcity paradigm then that's a true thing, but we're not as humans kind of programmed to be able to think like that. Like it shouldn't yeah, be uncomfortable to say that because we do this all the time. We, we balance different choices all the time when it comes to things that aren't public health. It's just that in public health, we're looking at the very real kind of like um, cold face results of that health spending and saying, should this person live or die? We're doing that all the time. We do that with um, welfare spending, right? The government choosing not to increase welfare spending is choosing that people kids will get sick and die. It's just less clear when we do that. And it's it's more removed from um, the electorate, right? Exactly. You know, it's over there. Whereas something like a, a in the pandemic, it's like anyone could catch it. And unlike poverty, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, but that's that was part of the part of the like potential for a revolutionary moment, right? That we spoke about when it's going worldwide. Um, but it's been mostly kind of co-opted and vaccine inequality, obviously, is a big part of that. Still a huge amount of East Africa is completely unvaccinated. India is not doing great. It's just how it's it works. It's completely irrational because, yeah, the, the more we leave everyone unvaccinated, the more likely it is that another variant comes through and just necessitates more shutdowns, more border closures, more more businesses yeah. go under. I mean, this is this is kind of the, the like funny thing about this all of this you look at australia and even in the u.s where the virus has just ripped through and it's actually not been good for business maybe maybe what? for big for certain big businesses it's been good for maybe zoom maybe amazon and you know a, a bunch of others who have been able to profit from everyone just sitting at home um but then like small businesses it's been disastrous for them because suddenly they find all their workers are sick or they get sick uh, as in the business owner themselves get sick uh, and there's no one there to man the counter um, you know, or customers aren't coming in. And in New Zealand in particular, small and medium businesses is like what our economy runs on. Yeah. Like it's, it's even, it'll be an even worse situation here. Um, and, and one of the stunning, stunning, no, I'm, predictable things to me. I disagree with that, Carl. It's what, oh, our, what our industry maybe runs on, but it's not what our finance economy runs on. It's not okay. what um, it, you can sort of disentangle the parts of the economy that build stuff and do stuff from the parts of the economy that make profits at this point. <laughs> like, um, so, and that's only going to be exacerbated, right? The fire economy, finance, insurance, and real estate do pretty well out of uh, lockdowns because vulture capital firms can swoop in and 
uh, make a huge amount of money scrounging. Oh, I hate this. You know, whatever's left of high street. Yeah, I, I think like, yeah, what, what I was just saying before is, um, you know, these are predictable outcomes though, right? And we've seen it happen in every other country now um, where they choose not to lock down or they, they, um, they don't do significant restrictions and then they have to close everything anyway, you know, because <laughs> wait, there are no more teachers left. Like they are all in bed with Omicron. Um, there, are, there are no more hospital workers. They're, they're all dead. You know, like it's if it's going to happen anyway, if you open up, why not just close so it doesn't happen? And, and this then, is basically what, what the situation in the US is, which is that um, the, no, no government wants to do a lockdown because it's become very politically unpalatable everywhere in the United States. Um, and so what they what instead happens is that things get so bad that you just get um, a series of voluntary lockdowns, basically. People just stay inside, they don't go out. Um, maybe shops don't do indoor dining, or like restaurants don't do indoor dining, that kind of thing. And then, and then basically for the people who don't have that choice, for the people who have to go out into the world and, and physically be somewhere to work, well, it's just kind of like, well, uh, good luck. Hope that works out for you. Yeah, and it's been really frustrating to me to see, you know, some stuff coming out of the government um, around like, oh, people should be stockpiling. Uh, we should treat this as like, um, as we treat any natural disaster, you know, should be prepared. It's like, what the fuck? No, how about you just stop it from coming in? Well, I, like, I think ideologically, it's a very convenient kind of relying on the market again, right? It's individualizing and marketizing those relationships. As Franco said, like if individuals have to choose When's the right time for them, essentially, to go into lockdown, right? It's very individualizing um, as, a, as a kind of ideolog ideological choice instead of a top-down imposed government-organized one. And we, saw, we can see how, how well that's done in China and New Zealand and Vietnam at first, at least. The very organized kind of government-imposed lockdowns are the ones that have worked. But if you want to make a comparison with individuals choosing to lock down, that's been inefficient everywhere that it's, that it's been. Yeah, and, and not just not just inefficient, but like a, a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do we think um, in, in the next couple of weeks? Do you think the government will kind of step it up if Omicron comes in? Do you think they're going to use those lockdowns again? They haven't ruled them out? I, I think they've given a very strong indication that, that, that they won't. Um, I think it would have to get pretty bad uh, in the health system for them to actually, um, yeah, do that again uh which yeah i mean which unfortunately is yeah. pretty plausible <laughs> yeah i think i think they'll go to red maybe tag on a couple of additional internal kind of limitations um try to sector it out as much as they can and then if it gets bad which it, it might well do then they might have to backtrack on some stuff yeah because they haven't um kind of said they're going to have any fund or anything for like in the same way they had previously it sounds like people are just going to be left to sort that on their own, whether, you know, they're in a uh, front-facing role that can't work or not. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like the support framework is uh, being dangled in the same way as it was over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I think uh, whatever happens, one thing is definitely guaranteed, it's going to be a reactive strategy rather than a proactive one, rather than preparing... There's for, so much time. We bought so much time. Yeah. I mean, it was the same thing with the with the vaccine uh, rollout, where there we we saw in the rest of the world how these things went. We saw that there was a certain amount of vaccine 
hesitancy, we, we, that, that was going to be an obstacle. And yet the government didn't really prepare for that and just sort of had to do it very quickly uh, once Delta started running through and, and try and kind of get through speed bumps um, at that point. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just going to be, unfortunately, just round after round of the government reacting and trying their best rather than, you know, spending a bunch of money in the short term to shore things up to shore up the health sector so that it's 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 actually in a, in a fighting shape for um if any worse variants come out which sadly <laughs> the way yeah. things are going it's probably going to happen at some point but right. you know uh there's you know it's not all bad uh look i will say this uh watching from from the united states back home uh i will i will say this uh it's very good to see how successful the vaccine rollout has been in New Zealand and that actually most people, not just most people, the vast, vast overwhelming majority of people have, have vaccinated and, and people are kind of abiding by the rules. Whereas, you know, in the United States, the most ardently pro-vaccine government in the world, so much so that they were like, screw doing anything else. We're just going to just jab this into people and, and hope this works out. So, I, don't know, I think at this point it's like 60 something percent of people are vaccinated um and the result is just you know just well nearly a million people dead so uh you know uh let's let's not be completely uh, grim about about uh the government could do far far better than it is but you know it could um, also do a lot worse great yeah, could do it a lot worse. That's right. hey thanks so much for joining us um today everyone um thanks to my co-hosts for joining um, this current events roundup uh, and thanks to the listeners um been really great to have you here listening to one of 200 once again um we'll be trying to continue this sort of format uh over the next uh few months uh reach out to us on twitter uh at one of 200 podcast to let us know your thoughts about that um if you if you have any um suggestions or things you'd like to see talked about hit us up there uh, and we can try and wrap that into uh, our own wrap. As usual, you can also check us out on one of 200nz for articles for the podcast and, and for anything else we're doing. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams is the lie aspirational Will you die Keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full You don't hate your nation You hate national